New guidelines for physical activity have been issued by the American College of Sports Medicine and the American Heart Association this past summer. What are these guidelines, and how should we advise our patients about exercise? You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. William Haskell, professor at the School of Medicine at Stanford University and lead author on the new guidelines regarding physical activity. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Haskell. Thank you. Well, we always advise exercise for our patients, but what does the data really show about the health benefits of exercise? Well, in the new guidelines, we attempt to summarize some of the major health benefits of regular physical activity or exercise. And surely at the top of the list is the issue of cardiovascular disease prevention and management. So we know that individuals in terms of risk of morbidity mortality from you know, coronary artery disease, general atherothrombotic vascular disease and stroke all show that more physically active people tend to be at lower risk and probably one of the most encouraging kind of newer pieces of data that really relatively moderate intensity activity, such things as brisk walking, seems to provide a lot of protective effect. Also in the new guidelines, we had a lot more data to work with on physical activity, cardiovascular disease in women, and with women showing this very similar benefits to what we saw somewhat earlier in men. So the activity doesn't have to be extremely vigorous to get the health benefits, and now we have some proof that it's both genders. That's correct. Yeah, both genders. And I think the other kind of added piece of information where we earlier had some data on, you know, older individuals, you know, over 65 or so, we now have, you know, significant data in terms of a variety of health benefits, including reduced risk of cardiovascular disease in individuals in their late 60s, 70s, and even early 80s. That's an important added piece of information, especially as our population is aging. Correct. And along with that, I think, is in this older population, obviously, a number of these patients have other comorbidities, you know, musculoskeletal disorders, and as well as pulmonary diseases, you know, and sometimes they're cancer survivors. And looking at those kind of subpopulations really looks like from a cardiovascular protective effect that exercise seems to have similar benefits in those populations. But of course, that's where the medical profession needs to kind of insert itself in terms of balancing benefits versus some of the risk of exercise in in those populations. So with some of those comorbidities, the guidelines may need to be modified uh, beyond uh, what is recommended for otherwise healthy adults. Yeah, I mean, I think our approach has been to try to push the recommendations in terms of how to approach physical activity for the general public more to kind of a public health model where, you know, if you're in pretty good health, you can probably proceed with a a moderate intensity activity program, you know, starting out with brisk walking and such without a lot of um, medical kind of supervision or surveillance. But as we move to what we think are the patient populations, these people with various morbidities, then we would really encourage those individuals to, you know, have a session with their physician and uh, kind of make sure that their approach is appropriate in terms of safety. 
So some new information extending what we already knew and suspected about exercise for cardiovascular disease. Are there other disease processes that seem to be helped by regular exercise? Yeah, I think probably the most new data kind of since the Surgeon General's report in in 1996 has been the role of physical activity in both the prevention and management of patients with type 2 diabetes. Surely there's very substantial clinical data from prospective observational studies showing that more physically active individuals and particularly more active individuals who are not obese tend to have substantially lower rates of new onset diabetes. And of course, there was the uh, diabetes prevention study that looked at one arm was lifestyle intervention in patients at increased risk for type 2 diabetes. They were generally sedentary, somewhat overweight, but had somewhat elevated fasting blood sugar levels. And in those individuals who participated in a lifestyle intervention program that included walking up to 150 minutes a week, you know, five times 30 minutes, and had modest weight loss somewhere around 10 pounds. They had a 58% lower development of type 2 diabetes than patients who didn't change their lifestyle and were on a placebo. So we have lots of clinical data showing that particularly in the prevention in these high-risk patients of type 2 diabetes, physical activity along with additional maybe some calorie restriction to lose, you know, even as little as 8 to 10 pounds is a very big effect on the prevention of type 2 diabetes. And along with the clinical data, we have lots of kind of basic science data now showing that how physical activity activates glucose transporters in skeletal muscle and really increases skeletal muscle insulin sensitivity and significantly reduces total body insulin requirements. With the changing epidemiology of diabetes with this epidemic, what that incredibly important information that is for all of us to digest and to pass on to our patients. Yeah, I think if there's any patient population that one typically sees in an office that would really benefit from the most from really encouraging them to increase their activity is this group of individuals who are at increased risk for the development of type 2 diabetes. And I think that given that, again, in the diabetes prevention program in the placebo group, over four years, 40% of those patients developed clinical diabetes, you know, 10% per year. Mm-hmm. And in the lifestyle intervention, the reduction in the new onset diabetes on average was about a 60% reduction. So with really pretty modest lifestyle changes, those patients, I think, really benefit almost more than any other patient population. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. William Haskell from Stanford University about the new exercise guidelines issued this past summer. In the document, Dr. Haskell, I also saw reference to breast cancer, colon cancer rates, and anxiety and depression. Yeah, again, the new data kind of over the past 10 years in terms of the epidemiologic type data has been the quite dramatic relationship between regular physical activity and, again, kind of, again, it's very encouraging that the kind of really quite moderate intensity physical activity provides substantial 
rates of both particularly colon cancer but also breast cancer are lower in more physically active individuals. Hmm. And the colon cancer association seems to be almost as strong with physical activity as the um, cardiovascular relationship. So it really is quite strong. I mean, one sees in quite moderately active groups versus quite sedentary groups and adjusted for dietary intake, BMI, and other risk factors for colon cancer, one sees maybe a 25 to 30% lower rate in the more active individuals. That's very impressive, and at least to me, unexpected. Is there a proposed biologic mechanism? That's the kind of question <laughs> a lot of people are pursuing right now. There's been a number of proposals in terms of everything from you know transit time and whether there's any kind of immune changes that are going on with exercise, it seems to focus in that. So far, that's been the kind of real difficult area is identifying a sound mechanism by which the physical activity really reduces colon cancer. A number of people looking at that, but it's still a little bit of a black box. And anxiety and depression, I always tend to recommend exercise, but there's some good data cementing that advice? Yeah, I think, again, observational data, but also more and more randomized controlled trials, particularly taking people who have either untreated moderate levels of anxiety and depression or people under treatment for anxiety and depression with pharmaceuticals and then adding physical activity program on top of that. And in both cases, one sees kind of significant improvements in magnitude of anxiety and depression in those individuals. And again, there's a number of mechanisms proposed kind of from the simplest of exercise as a kind of a timeout effect in terms of you particularly do exercise outside and kind of get away from the stress and this type of thing, Mm -hmm. to modulation of central nervous system. We know that regular exercise decreases sympathetic tone, so maybe become a little more parasympathetic driven, and that may help particularly things like anxiety. So people are looking at a number of different biologic mechanisms that might go along with those benefits. So the data on benefits has been greatly expanded, and these have led to these new guidelines. Tell us, what are the new guidelines? What should we be counseling our patients? Yeah, the guidelines really haven't changed much from the kind of public health guidelines that were published by the American College of Sports Medicine and the Centers for Disease Control back in 1995. The primary guideline is kind of tried to make it pretty simple is, you know, 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise on at least five days of the week. So that kind of gets to the idea of about 150 minutes of activity throughout the week. And also stated is that if you are interested in and, you know, have the health status that instead of moderate intensity exercise, one could do more vigorous exercise for more like three times a week, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, three times a week. So there's that kind of trade-off. Also, we tried to make it explicit that you could really mix and match both moderate and vigorous activity if you were interested in doing that in order to meet current guidelines. For example, you know, you might do brisk walking 30 minutes a couple times a week during the week and then on the weekend go for you know, two 20-minute jogs or bicycle rides or something of this sort, Mm -hmm. and you could put that together. And I think it's important for 
a message to patients that the main thing is to get out and do something and the data really suggests that there's a wide range of activities and a wide range of combinations and you know spread throughout the week that will provide health benefits. Well, I want to thank Dr. William Haskell, a professor at the School of Medicine at Stanford University and lead author on the new guidelines from the American College of Sports Medicine and the American Heart Association on physical activity and public health. He's outlined for us some of the new data that we have supporting the benefits of exercise for health and then has taken us through some of the basics of the slightly revised guidelines that we should be imparting to our patients. This has been the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com.